So there is a conception of God in which he is detached or aloof as if he set the universe in motion and sits in his armchair or his judgment seat and just watches to see what will happen. And while there is truth in the fact that God is transcendent above his creation, he's exalted and sits far above all the finite material of this world, at the same time, it is equally true that he is imminently close and involved in his creation. Listen to these truths that these verses ascribe to our God. In Psalm 34, in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And if you're a human, you have been brokenhearted and you have had your spirit crushed. And this text tells us that God is near to those who have suffered such moments. In Psalm 147, in verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. As we read through the Gospels, we're encountering regularly our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we do this, it is very important for us to remember what John, inspired by the Spirit, tells us in John 1.18, that Jesus is the declaration or explanation of God. He shows us He shows us who God is because He is God. And as we see in scene after scene, Jesus demonstrating not only that He is divine, He demonstrates what defines God. All of the fullness of deity is embodied in Him, Colossians 2.9 says. When we see Jesus... We see what God is like. Remember he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So as we behold our Savior in this text in John chapter 11, we're beholding Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead. We are seeing in flesh and blood, the divine nature before our eyes. As we come to John 11, we will look at one of the more well-known narratives depicting Jesus' power. Here in John 11, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead. And in this chapter, He declares and demonstrates His power over death because He is life. Every kind of death is subject to Jesus' life-giving power. Physical death, emotional death, 
and spiritual death. In our chapter, what stands out is Jesus' power over physical death. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. Spiritual life-giving is at the heart of all that is recorded here in John chapter 11. And with this spiritual life comes the guarantee of emotional and physical resurrection. So we'll see with our eyes the words that depict Jesus bringing someone from physical death to physical life all while teaching that he has the power not only over physical life, but over spiritual life, and that spiritual life fixes all of it. John chapter 10 ends with Jesus on the eastern side of the Jordan. And John chapter 11 takes place both there and in Bethany, which is approximately two miles to the east of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has proven in the Gospels that he has power to heal people from a distance. On a number of occasions, Jesus was not even present physically when he healed someone who was in a deep circumstance of illness. So Jesus has proven his ability to do that. But that was not the point. The point was not just making Lazarus well physically from his illness the scene in Jesus life and in the gospels was to prepare us for a deeper purpose including unveiling who he really is so with all that being said the chapter begins in verse 1 and we see that Lazarus is ill it says now a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So Lazarus is ill. This is how it starts. In verses 2 and 3, we have this beckoning. There's a, there's a message sent to Jesus. Verse 2, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and who wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now we're going to see this scene in chapter 12 where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with ointment. We'll talk about that then. We're just describing who this Mary is. Lazarus's brother. Excuse me, sister. Lazarus is her brother. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. In verses 4 through 6, we see an interesting response from our Savior when he receives the message. So someone messenger goes off they describe to Jesus the illness of Lazarus and in his love this is how he responds but when Jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus verse 6 starts with so, in the Greek, it's boon. Therefore, Jesus loved all three, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And because he loved them, he, uh, he heard 
that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And so we have an odd response that will be delved into some more next week. Jesus in his love delays. Verses 7 and 8 says, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? In other words, it's okay, he waited the two days, let's go, we're going to go head over there. And the disciples are immediately doing their calculations. I remember the last time we were in Judea, <laughs> they wanted to kill you. Uh, this doesn't sound like a great idea. Jesus' response to them in verses 9 and 10 is, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Essentially, Jesus declares it's time to work. Time is limited. It's time to get the job done. Now is the time, is essentially what he's saying. And the subtlety in here, that the light of the world is with you and the light of the world is in you, if you, do, if you walk and stumble, it's because the, the light is not in you. There's some implications there. But the reality is, listen, if you think about this, the disciples are afraid, like any of us would have been, to head back there. And Jesus says, the light of the world is with you. And now is the time to do this. Verses 11 through 16 an interchange. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. There's the purpose clause of his discussion. I'm going to awaken Lazarus. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Therefore, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that he was not, I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. In other words, Thomas is not having a great, a great thought as to what's about to happen here. Essentially, from verses 11 through 16, we, we want to grab this. Jesus is letting his disciples know Lazarus has died. He waited two days, now Lazarus is dead, but I go to awaken him. I have a purpose. Verses 17 through 32 is a long section. And in this long section from 17 excuse me, through 32, we're going to see Jesus have two conversations. One first with Martha, and the second one with Mary. Let's just follow along with it uh, to get the, the flavor now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the disciples had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Martha heard that Jesus was coming, and when she met him, uh, so she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in her house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can feel, I think, the brokenness, the sadness, call it despair, and some confusion. A little later, we're going to see that some people state very plainly the confusion that was probably inside of both Mary and Martha. In verse 36, it'll say to this, something to this effect, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have healed him before he died? Couldn't he have done this? That's stated explicitly by others. We have no idea, but it seems that I'd say implicitly we hear it in Mary and Martha. Now Jesus' response here, this is, we've read the story we're familiar with the outcome. I would, I would ask you to try to still um, leave it mysterious and awesome in your mind. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, Come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's the response. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth or come out. 
the man who had died came out. Seems natural, right? We've read it. A hundred, two hundred, however many times you've read this. But can you imagine? Can you imagine being in a situation where someone has been dead for four days? Someone speaks. Lazarus, come out. And they arise still with their grave clothes on. This is an amazing scene. His hands and feet were bound with linen straps and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. (laughs) Yeah, probably a good idea. Four days, all hope was gone. Three days, there is this thought that the Spirit hovers over and might come back in. After three days, that hope is gone. Four days, Lazarus, come out. And just like when he spoke the words, let there be light, and there was light, when he spoke the words, Lazarus, come out, he came out. This is the power of of an almighty, omnipotent God. And of course, the response was mixed, as it always is. Look at verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Shocker. Like, you just saw someone that was dead come to life. They believed in him. But, on the other hand, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there's our summary. That's, that's the 46 verses. This morning, in the moments that we have remaining, we want to focus in on a theme that John emphasizes in various ways. And it's a theme that can make all the difference in the world to us. Our Savior, our God, is a tender, affectionate, Savior toward those who are suffering. In this scene, His friends are suffering. And their friend, Jesus, was tenderly affectionate toward them. Now I think it's interesting that Jesus does not shield His friends from pain and suffering. Because life is full of it. As parents, we try to shield our children from a certain amount of pain, but we have to let them taste the pain of this world here and there. We can't shield them from every ill, every pain, every turmoil, every suffering. God allows, in this context, the people to experience pain And what's so remarkable is that He enters that pain with them. Do not think, please, that because you endure grief and pain, that it's an indication that God does not love you. That is not true. Our mind 
runs toward that as if it were true. God loves us in and with our experience of pain. Look at all the ways that Jesus' love and empathy are expressed in this narrative account. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to Him saying, Lord, He whom You love is ill. The one You love. The, the term there in the Greek is phileo or philos. It has the idea of a tender, affectionate friendship love. The one who was your friend is sick. This is how John describes Jesus' relationship with Lazarus. He's his friend. Verse 5, John says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The word loved there is the Greek term agapao. It's an unconditional, sturdy love. And I think it's very interesting that he uses the same term for Jesus' love for all three of them. Now, we've seen Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in other contexts. Martha put in less stellar light. Right? She was cumbered about with many cares. Lord, tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, you're worried about a bunch of stuff. Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. So we get this impression, you've got like Mary up here because she does what's really good and then Martha, well she's doing good stuff but it's not as good and so she's down here. We don't hear a whole lot about Lazarus. He's probably playing games somewhere. You know, he's just some, some guy. No. John, inspired by God's Spirit, writes, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is good news. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Our friend. Philos. Our friend. This is how Jesus speaks. Now, look at how Jesus' spirit was impacted by the scene of weeping and death. Look at verse 33. It says, When Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. In verse 33, he was deeply moved. The, the Greek term has this indication that he was snorting with indignation. <laughs> That's a great idea about someone snorting. You can see anger. Now you could start to say, oh, Jesus is angry with all these people for crying. Are you serious? That's, that's going to be your interpretation. Jesus is angry that they're crying, that their brother died. That is not correct. What is Jesus angry about? Why is he troubled? I've got a little ringing in here. Why is he troubled? The idea is deeply disturbed, even to the point of shaking, is the idea that he was troubled. And then in verse 35, he begins to weep. 
if there's an indication of Jesus being angry, why is he angry? I think you can look at the outcome of sin's entrance into the world. You can look at pain and disease and suffering and death. Death is an enemy. Disease is an enemy. Suffering is defeated. Does God care about the pain associated with sin and death? It's a a question I have for you to ponder. Does God care about the pain associated with sin and death? Listen to this passage of Scripture from Ezekiel 18. He says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. I wonder, if you just kind of think about this for a minute, is that always the way people conceive of God and His view toward death? Because I think sometimes as I observe how people look at God or understand God or react to what they're experiencing, it's almost as if they view God similarly to the character of the wicked witch of the West who said, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too. (laughs) It's almost as if people think that God is this vengeful, I'm going to get you one way or another. Which is why you'll hear people say, I could never step foot into that church because if I did, lightning bolts would you know, fly from the sky. Or, oh, I was going down this, this part you know, and, and going down this road in my life and God hit me with a two-by-four. Really, this is, this is what God does? It's an interesting conception. And here we see what God is described as being like. And He sees Mary... And Martha weeping, and those that came to console weeping, and his spirit is angry with death that has resulted from sin that he has come to correct. And he bears long with them and he enters into their grief. In addition to Jesus' anger at sin's outcome, he had tremendous sympathy upon those experiencing turmoil and the pain of death. And this is not surprising to us. It shouldn't be. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus in this text is illustrating what Paul speaks of in Romans 12.15. That we're to weep with them that weep. His heart is heavy. He is truly a faithful and sympathetic high priest as is described to us in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He bears and feels and, 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 and experiences that pain with us as one who loves us. In verses 36 and 37, the people's perception of Jesus' care is seen. Look at, look at verse 36. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him? What was was the basis of them saying that? They're observing his countenance. They're observing his responsiveness to Martha and Mary. And so they respond, look, he loves them. He cares about them. That's, it's, it's seen clearly on his face and his countenance through his words, through every core of his being. They're confused in verse 37. 38 again, verse 38 captures Jesus' emotional response. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. God is not detached. He's not unsympathetic about the challenges that we face. He cares. One of my passages that, that, that comes to my mind on a recurring basis is from Exodus chapter 2. Take a look there with me. I'm going to come right back to John 11. Exodus chapter 2. This passage is telling in its description of what our God is like. Exodus 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard, remembered, saw, and knew. This is a way for God to to describe. He has entered into this experience. Sympathy, empathy, care. This is who He is. And Jesus, the full declaration of the Godhead in bodily form, the explanation of God is describing and depicting this very same thing in this scene. He knows He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that this pain was temporary. And yet, they felt that pain in its fullness because they didn't know what He was going to do. And Jesus feels for them in the midst of it. He empathizes for them. Again, I'll remind you of Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Alright, so, why is this? Why is our omnipotent God so in tune with our pain? It's a very simple answer. God loves us. God loves us. It's stated explicitly in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's stated explicitly in Romans 5.8, where it says God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
It's stated explicitly in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loves us. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows it all. That could be super scary to have a being that is all-knowing and all-powerful if they didn't also care or love. But He's not just all-knowing and He's not just all-powerful. He is also defined as love. That makes all the difference. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. That's what the charge was against. Look, He's a friend of sinners. He goes off with, with gluttons. He's a friend of sinners. It was like a, like, it was a bad expression. He's a friend of sinners. You know, my, my friend, it's a good thing He was. Because if He weren't a friend of sinners, He'd be no friend of mine. And I hate to inform you, but I must. He'd be no friend of yours either. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Like me. And like you. Abraham was called the friend of God. Did you know that? The friend of God. In John 15, Jesus tells His disciples, I have called you friends. Friends. Jesus. <laughs> Who is Jesus? Back up. He's the Son of God who spoke the world into existence. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. By Him right now, in this second, where you sit, you are sustained in life and breath by Jesus. He upholds the world by the Word of His power. This sovereign God who is eternal, co-equal, and co-existent with the Father. This God, this Jesus, has called people like us His friends. The narrative about Lazarus and his sisters, among many truths, proclaims that Jesus loves His people. How did Jesus' disciples become Jesus' friends? How did Abraham become the friend of God? It's another really tough one. They believed Him. That is what the Bible is regularly calling us to do. Believe Him. Look up. Look away from here. Look away from here. Look away from here. And look up. Look to Him. See Him. God is calling us to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. God is calling us to believe in the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. 
He's calling us to trust Him in the hardest parts of life. When things are breaking down. When finances aren't working out. When health is failing. When relationships are being torn apart. When life is fading away. When your life is fading away, when your life is falling apart, who's there through it all? Oh, my special friend. We're all finite. We're all finite. I'd love to tell my wife, I'll be there with you through it all. No matter what. I'll be there. But I can't control my life. I can't control if I have breath in my lungs. There might be a time I'm not going to be able to be there for my wife or for my children. There might be a time when my my wife can't be there for me or for my children. Or my children can't be there for me. We don't control those things. We're finite. Who will be with you through it all? No one else can promise to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Because everyone else is finite. But God is present and He loves you and He cares for you. He is worthy of our trust. You can trust an infinite, omnipotent, loving God. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Oh yeah, he awakened him physically. And my guess is he awakened him spiritually, and that impacted everything. Yes, Lazarus would physically die again, but Lazarus would live forever. And one day, The rest of Lazarus will join him. (laughs) The body piece that he eventually left behind. God is with us through it all. We can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you love people like us. That you are a friend of sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I want to give you thanks. I want to give you praise for your willingness to love a sinner like me. I also thank you that you love sinners everywhere. Father, help us to look to you and believe, to see your care and experience the benefits of that care intimately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.